News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, vaccination rates in the interior of our province have been lagging a bit, and now this is where we're seeing an increase in COVID-19 cases. Now, some businesses in the interior, like some restaurants and some resorts actually, have voluntarily closed down temporarily because they say they've got staff members, too many of them, who have contracted the virus. Those are the statements that these businesses have put out there. That's one of the reasons why the Surrey Board of Trade has sent a letter to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the Health Minister of Canada, Patty Haidu, Premier John Horgan, Adrian Dix, urging them to implement what's called a, a proof of immunization model, but more commonly known as a kind of vaccine passport. Places like France, Italy, they're also doing this. Is it time for Canada and BC to follow? Well, we're going to talk more about this idea now with the help of Jason Kinderchuk, University of Manitoba, Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. Thanks for being back with us. Hey, thanks for having me. So this argument seems to be gaining some traction. I find it interesting that it's coming more from businesses these days too. Yeah, I, I think what you're starting to see again is is this need to want to get back to some normalcy. And I think you know when you look at the data coming from uh, you know from across the globe as far as the differences right now with Delta between vaccinated and unvaccinated, I, I think that that's what's pushing this. Right? Is we we know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but how do we get all of us there and, and how, do, how do we get back to, you know, kind of, you know, pre-2020 days? So I, I think that you're going to see, uh, you know, kind of a growing call for that over, over the next, uh, you know, days to weeks. Is it inevitable, do you think? You know what, I, I think that certainly it is going to be. And, and I, you know, again, I'm biased because I travel in a lot of places where I still have to have my, you know, my yellow fever vaccination record and, and I'm not allowed entry unless I have that. And so it's for me, it's not that foreign. I, I think that we're we're seeing it pick up steam here. And I think certainly, again, we know that this is not going to go away overnight as far as uh, COVID-19. So our best strategy is to get as many people vaccinated as possible. But of course, there's also the ramifications of of doing uh, you know doing a record right. like this or a mandate. This is the thing that I I kind of struggle with a bit with this because I thought if anybody who's traveled, they know you go and get a vaccine for some things before you have to go to certain countries. And I, I think it's funny that people don't have a problem with that to go somewhere, but all of a sudden it's become an issue. Yeah, and you know, I, I look at what we have going on here in Manitoba. So we have areas of the province that have had very, very high vaccination coverage. Then we have entire communities where we have extremely low vaccination coverage. And this is where we get into you know this issue of saying, how do we engage those communities? Because to be frank, a, a vaccination record or a vaccination passport is probably not going to be the thing that pushes them over the edge. So you know, to, to finally go and get uh, you know get their vaccines. So what do we do now to engage those communities without further ostracizing them? And it's it's difficult. It's not going to be something we're going to solve, I think, overnight. It's, it's going to take you know, probably years of engagement. Right. So we kind of raced to this 80% number, right, of people who've gotten yeah. that first shot. Do you think that last, whatever it's going to be, 5 10% is going to take us a lot longer? It is, right? Because we, we have to think that, first of all, we, we have people that still have not had accessibility or have had accessibility issues with vaccination. We have people that are hesitant that I think we're going to be able to get uh, convinced to, to come in and get vaccinated with, with what we're seeing. Then we have that group that has a, a true reluctancy, whether that's ideological, whether it's you know based on misinformation, who knows? But they are going to be the ones that, that are going to take a long period of time. But right. we, we have to engage them.
Some people, I think you're right, just they need a little bit more time because they're not convinced because they feel this vaccine is so new. I've heard that argument from so many people. But if time goes on and lots of people have gotten it and people are fine, do you think that in and of itself convinces people? I think it will change. Um, you know, certainly here, you know, we have communities that that have, you know, felt, uh, you know, concerns about persecution because this goes back to historical uh, reference points for them with with things like mandates and coming from, uh, you know, government regimes that that has things like vaccine mandates. So I think there is that concern. It's going to take that longer period of time to, to build that olive branch and, and to do that convincing. But we have to do it. Okay, so do you, is the government working on this, do you think? Is this going to be inevitable for Canada as a whole to have to deal with this issue? Certainly, and we're, we're already doing it, certainly at, at a provincial level here. You know, we, we brought in people that, uh, you know, that are familiar with communities, that are community leaders, that feel that there's an importance in, in vaccination, but also have trust. And, and that, to me, is a big part, is we have to figure out where are the, the weak points for us with, with trust and, and communication, and how do we build that back up? And what kind of a difference do you think it could make then, Jason, to have something like that in place? Well, we have to think beyond COVID, right? When we think about, you know, certainly what we're seeing right now with immunization rates of COVID, if we could do that for influenza year after year, we would be in a much different position during the fall and winter periods of, of time, globally as well as nationally. So if we can make these changes, what it's going to do is it's going to decrease the burden of infectious diseases across the board. And that's extremely important for us. I think I was thinking about that yesterday when I heard that, you know, people, there's a lot of summer colds going around right now because all of a sudden the mask came off. Have you been hearing about that too? Yeah, we, we've seen, listen, certainly in the UK, we've seen spikes of, uh, of uh, RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. We, we likely are going to see some spikes in, in influenza. Um, this is part and parcel of what infectious diseases do. They, they don't wait for one to burn out until they, you know, kind of start, you know, circulating again. Right. So people should be prepared. I was thinking that, oh, we all jumped to take our masks off. But then when you forget, you haven't had a cold for two years and all of a sudden it hits you hard. Well, that, and that's the, my concern with, you know, a lot of the, the talk about hygiene theater is like, yeah, you know, certainly hand sanitizers and hand washing, maybe for COVID hasn't been as important as we thought. But for a lot of infectious diseases, it still remains pretty important. So we don't want to see those things go completely by the wayside either. That's the thing that people don't understand is that these viruses, they lurk, right? They don't ever really go away. No, no. And that's, you know, listen, it keeps people like me employed, I guess, which is good. But um, it, it, it's so true. They, they, they don't wait for another one to burn out. And, and we, we have to consider the fact that, that we're going to have infectious diseases circulating around for the rest of our lifetimes. And we have to do our best to, to deal with them. All right. Listen, thanks so much for talking to us about it this morning. Thanks for having me. That is Dr. Jason Kindrichuk, University of Manitoba Assistant Professor and in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. Uh, The issue of these COVID-19 or vaccine passports has come up and more and more discussion about this, right? Uh, Particularly because some business organizations like the Surrey Board of Trade has come out and said, listen, we need this. Their argument is that it provides certainty for businesses and that it would allow businesses businesses to not have to worry about closing down because of COVID cases, because they would know that everybody who came in had showed proof of vaccination if they had this official vaccine passport. Are you okay with this? Would you be like, yeah, sure, I'm vaccinated. I don't care. I'll show my vaccine passport to you know a business if I need to get in there. Would you be okay with that? 
it's not, I think it's, we should definitely expect that we're going to have to show it to other countries if we travel, which is not unusual because we do it right now. We do it now. If you travel, there's a whole lot of countries that you travel to right now that you need to show proof of immunization or get a vaccine before you go there, as Dr. Kinderchuk was pointing out. But here at home, do you support that idea of saying, you know what, I have to show proof of vaccination if I'm going to go do X, Y, Z? We seem to have a bit of a health-oriented show today. That's just the way news seems to be going. Later in this hour, we're going to talk about the return of the common cold. All this masking coming off and, you know, people getting used to it again. And guess what's back? The summer cold. That's right. We'll be talking about that after the 7.30 news. But also today, a hot topic is going to be getting people vaccinated. I know it seems like things are moving along really well, but we have plateaued right at that 80% mark. And we need we need it a bit higher. We need it a little bit more to really help guarantee that we can push back on COVID-19. So how do we do that? How do we get that increasing number, just like pushing it up a little bit higher with people who are vaccine hesitant? Well, other provinces are dealing with this in different ways. Uh, In Alberta, you've got family doctors who get kind of vaccine hesitancy roadmaps to help them convince people. Ontario, they're also pushing to get doctors involved as well. But here in BC, we haven't done that yet. But could family doctors play a big role in encouraging people who are not vaccinated to get the shot? Well, joining us now is Dr. Anna Wallach, who's a family physician and assistant professor at UBC, a member of Masks for BC and Masks for Canada. That's a group of doctors who support the mandatory mask rule. Dr. Wallach, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. What kind of a role do you think family doctors could play here? So... Even though we don't officially have a role at the moment in the vaccine rollout, a lot of family doctors are doing their part to encourage the vaccine hesitant, the vaccine anxious to get their shots, mostly by counseling, mostly by talking to our patients who have concerns um, and, and trying to get them to, to get them to get their shots. But there is that gap between talking to us and going to get the shot. And ideally, what we would like to see is being able to talk to the patient, allay their concerns, and then if the patient agrees to get the shot, we can say, okay, hang on, I'm just going to go duck out to my fridge and grab you your shot. And it's all done in one visit. Currently, we don't have that. And so I'd like to see that rolling out in the near future, Maybe when we get more vaccines, uh, more fridge-stable vaccines, um, and there's a lot of, I know there's a lot of logistics involved with getting the administration um, side of it organized. So ideally, that's what we'd like to see. Right. And are family doctors open for this? And a lot of the family doctors who I've spoken to informally are all looking forward to it. We're all, everybody on social media, we're all talking about how we want to, we want to do our part. We've been sitting here for 16 months. We want to do what we can to help move this along because we all know that the plateau between the first dose and the second dose, the fact that that gap is narrowing means we're not reaching a significant portion of our population. And we need to get those who are truly, they're you know, we're not trying to go for the the vaccine conspiracies, the I'm going to turn magnetic or my 5G is going to get better. We're not going for those. We're going for those people who have real questions and just have no one to turn to and no authority figure to ask. And we want to target those people and get that 80% closer to 90. Right. So the people who maybe just want to ask a few questions have been afraid to do so because there's just so much, you know, political stuff surrounding this now. 
There's a lot of political stuff. There's a lot of social media noise around it. Um, I do uh, at least twice a day. I'm talking to somebody and answering questions, and they're legitimate questions. But usually, it's there's a lot of fear there, and I just want to be able to allay their fear and just help them go through it. And I guess this is more viable now, Dr. Wallach, because we are talking about smaller numbers, right? We are talking about smaller numbers. So yes, it is more viable. Like I said, the biggest hiccup is um, vaccine stability. We just don't have the, you know, the fridges that can store, that can store this. Um, people's waiting rooms may not be set up to, to have the, you know, the, the social distancing between patients. And, you know, if we're only vaccinating one patient a day, for example, that one patient will add to the 90%, but then what do we do with the rest of the vial? There are all those little things, so I can understand why we're not yet involved in it. And we're hoping that the government is looking to try to get us, get us more involved and, you know, help us, let us help do our part. Is, do you think there is enough supply to make that happen now? I mean, certainly it seems like that. Oh, it seems like Canada is a wash in vaccines. So yes, I think there, I think there is enough supply for the community, family, doctors, especially in the rural areas, um, to get involved. Right. So, what happens next? Then you've got this idea. Are you talking to the government about it? Um, I know that Doctors of BC, which is the group that is representing doctors, is in active talks and has always been in active talks with the government throughout um, this 16 months. And I know they're looking at exactly that at trying to get the family doctors involved so that um, we can have we can have a play a bigger role um, in the coming fall and winter months. It's fascinating Dr. Wallach to me to that you think that like there's and I'm sure you're absolutely right is that there's a gap right between people talking to their doctor and saying okay yes you're right I'll do it and then leaving but you know somehow they still don't make that appointment they still don't get it done. It is. It's quite scary. It makes me nervous when I have patients who I speak to and I know I've spoken to them and I've convinced them and they said, okay, I'm going to go book the vaccine. I get very nervous until I get that response from them. Okay, I got my vaccine. I'm a lot more comfortable when someone calls me and says, hey, I have my vaccine booked for two or three days from now and I just have a couple of questions. And I'm, I'm less nervous about, about them going onto social media and seeing something that scares them or something on the news. I'm all like, it's 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 understandable. This is, these right. are unprecedented times. We don't True. know what we're dealing with. So. True. But if you told somebody to go get a blood test or an x-ray, they would do it. Ideally, yes, but there is still also some hesitancy there sometimes. So not all tests get ordered. Not all tests that are ordered get done or they'll get done much later, much later in time. Boy, this just is explaining to me how challenging it is to be a family doctor, Dr. Wallach. <laughs> well, the other thing that, that doctors would love to be, that, that we know we need to play a part in is when we start getting the kids vaccinated. It's going to be a lot easier for a kid to get vaccinated in the doctor's office, the doctor that they know, they've known all their lives or they trust, than going into like the convention center, for example, and being surrounded by all these um, strangers. Right. So what do you say to somebody right now then who is listening, who thought... Yeah, I do have some questions about this. What if should they have, do? If you have questions, genuine questions, contact your family doctor. We are all more than willing to help. And we all want to help you talk through your anxiety, talk through your questions so that we can get to that 90%. Right. So don't go to social media. Go to your family doctor. Exactly. Don't go to social media. Even if your doctor is on social media, um, we can only give out general information. Sometimes the 
information that you need is particular only to you. And we can't talk about that in like a 250 word t- Right. Also, a face-to-face conversation with someone who is, you know, knowledgeable and an authority is a lot better than getting something off of social media. Exactly. Definitely. Makes sense to me. Dr. Wallach, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Anna Wallach. is a family physician, assistant professor at UBC, uh, talking about how they hope family doctors will essentially be used by the provincial government here. They say that we've got to get that number up with that vaccine-hesitant group of about 20% right now, right? We're at 80% of people who've gotten their first shot and eligible for that. About 60% of people have both. But they're saying to get into kind of get a little bit higher They just want family doctors to be able to give out the shot so that if they have somebody in their office that they have talked to and the person says, yeah, you know what, you're right, I'm going to get that shot, that they don't have to leave and hope that they make an appointment, that they could say, you know what, we're going to get you that shot right now. It's been so long, I think a lot of us have probably forgotten what a cold feels like, right? All those measures that we took for fighting COVID-19, hand washing, space, mask, distancing, all of that actually help to protect us against some other kind of common cold viruses too. But now doctors are saying, look at, we should expect and anticipate a resurgence of some respiratory viruses too, and some that might be pretty troublesome. To talk more about this, we're joined now by Alfonso Solomano, an investigator at BC Children's Hospital and medical director of the BC RSV Immunoprophylaxis Program. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us this morning. A pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Well, tell me about this program. What is it that you actually do and look into? Uh, The uh, BCRC Immunoprophylaxis Program focuses on protecting some of the most vulnerable children in the province. These are kids that are less than two years of age and mostly less than one years of age. And kids that have, uh, as a background, severe prematurity, for example, or congenital heart disease or severe uh, problems with uh, chronic lung uh, issues. Right. So this is not the majority of the population by any means. This is a very focal uh, group of kids, uh, uh, roughly 400 kids a year, which is about 0.5% of the population of kids less than less than two years of age. Right. So but it's are, a very, very specific subgroup. But are these kids who have... I guess, benefited from all of the measures that we've taken for COVID-19 in terms of they probably didn't see as many risky viruses? No question about that. Uh, Basically, part of what we do, and we try to do it uh, for the overall population, is to teach families the value of social distancing, avoidance of uh, uh, sick contacts and crowds in the first few months of life, uh, for every kid. And uh, now that we added social distancing uh, in masks uh, uh, for COVID protection, then RSV disappeared. And so did the other respiratory viruses, which is basically an indication that that the teaching about being careful about avoiding uh, sick people with uh, colds and, and coughs and things like that is, is very valuable. Right. You mentioned RSV. What is that? RSV is is the most common uh, serious uh, respiratory infection that that results in in hospital admission. Uh, So in the first two years, if you're going to get sick and end up in hospital, it is quite possible or likely that this will be because of RSV. The other respiratory viruses tend not to be as serious, 
although they should not be discounted either. There are viruses, even the virus of the cold, rhinovirus, can, can result in a pretty nasty uh, respiratory infection in the smallest kids. And then, of course, there's influenza, which is a, a virus that can result in quite significant illness and even death. So are you concerned then with all the kind of return to normal measures that have been going on, kind of a loosening of restrictions? Are you concerned about what kind of viruses might pop up now? Yes, yes, we are. And actually, even last year when uh, there was some loosening of restrictions as the numbers uh, of COVID had come down, we already started seeing the cold virus, uh, which is called rhinovirus, uh, reappearing. Uh, and that virus has maintained a presence. So there are probably people who have children who have said, yeah, but I've had my kid and even I have had a, a bit of a cold. But that's rhinovirus, which is by no means uh, uh, as severe uh, an agent uh, of infection as uh, RSV and, and, and not as influenza. So RSV and influenza pretty much disappeared and they haven't yet reappeared, not locally, not in BC, not in Canada. But it's starting to make a comeback in the southern U.S., for example. And it is anticipated that, as happened in Australia, New Zealand, and other uh, countries in the southern hemisphere, as uh, the COVID precautions were relaxed and the numbers came down, these viruses started coming back. So is there anything that you can do at this point to get people to protect themselves? I think, I think, as I said before, is just raise the awareness of uh, moms and, par- and, and parents and, and the community in general that these viruses are coming back, that some are pretty nasty, and that uh, there are certain things that protect uh, the kids uh, against transmission. And this has to do with common sense uh, interventions. Uh, breastfeeding is very important. Uh, Hand washing, avoiding sick contacts, avoiding crowded uh, situations. And when I say this, it has to be in a sensible way. I mean, we don't have to be completely in, in, uh, paralyzed by the thought that, that these viruses are going to be uh, overwhelming society. I don't think that they will, but they are pretty nasty. And for the kids that are at the highest risk, uh, we have the program uh, ready to uh, kick in and start administering uh, uh, what we call a monoclonal antibody, which is a, a way of protecting the kids during the high season when they're at the highest risk so that we can hopefully decrease the, the chance of hospitalization. Right. What about the general population here as well? So we'll, you know, we haven't had a cold in a while, a lot of people, right? Will we, we feel like it hits us a little bit harder? It can. It can very well because, you see, one of the things that happens when you don't have colds and you don't have circulating uh, viruses, is that the general readiness of the immune system uh, slacks. And and so in children, it is more important than in adults because adults have a good memory. Uh, the immune system has a memory. And uh, when they're exposed to a virus, that even if it had gone away for, for a while, uh, that memory uh, is able to trigger a good immunological response. Uh, in, in babies, particularly in, the, in babies in the first year, after the moms uh, have transferred antibody first, they don't transfer as much antibody when they don't have it circulating. And in the first year, they're, they're particularly 
uh, prone to to getting sicker. So yes, the mm-hmm. kids in the first year are are, are possibly going to get sicker with the common circulating uh, viruses. All right. Listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. A pleasure talking to you. It was fascinating. That's Alfonso Solomano, investigator at BC Children's Hospital and medical director of the BC RSV Immunoprophylaxis Program, talking about viruses, essentially, like cold viruses, respiratory viruses that are going to start circulating right now that masks are off in so many cases and people are socializing again. And if you haven't had a cold in a long time, well, get ready. I'm feeling we can have an early cold season this year. In the meantime, let's talk about our COVID-19 situation and mink farms. Because once again, we have seen that two mink on a BC farm have now tested positive for the virus that causes COVID-19 in humans. Now, the farm has gone under quarantine. That's really about all we know right now. But still, there's lots of questions about what is going on with mink farm operators in the province. So essentially, there's a new public health order out that says there shall be no new mink farms and it's going to cap existing ones at their current numbers. What does all of this mean? Sarah Dubois joins us now, the Chief Scientific Officer at the BC SPCA. Sarah, thanks for being here. Good morning, Timmy. What do you think about that provincial health order then capping the number of mink farms? So it's a great start. We know that the uh, public health officer has acknowledged the threat that mink farming poses to public health and that the potential risk of variants that could come from mink would actually undermine the efficacy of our COVID-19 vaccination program in British Columbia. This has been an ongoing problem though, right, for the last year and a half. Absolutely. This has been happening worldwide. We've seen reinfections on the same farm time and time again. The mink circulate this virus in them. They're just susceptible to it. It's just um, how their biology works. And so really, as we've seen in other countries, the only way to stop this reinfection and the risk to farmers, of course, and the general public is to actually cull the mink. And that would be done at the end of the season for about 90% of the animals. Anyways, that's how the, um, the season works for them. But ending mink farming permanently would be the only way to get out of this public health emergency for mink farmers. Now, have they had this problem in other jurisdictions? Absolutely. There's been over 20 countries already that have uh, ended mink farming as a result of the pandemic. They've accelerated existing plans to end some of the farming due to animal welfare concerns. But of course, this is sealed the deal when the public was put at risk. Right. So are we going far enough then? Like if it's cropping up again and again, the measures that we have taken, are they not enough? Exactly. So this is the third farm. It's happened twice on one of the farms. And we will likely see, we only have nine farms left in British Columbia. This is a dying industry itself. And we want to support these farmers. Just like you said, these farms are, are in beautiful agricultural lands. They can be converted to actually growing food. You know, we want to find sustainable uh, work for farmers um, that help our food security in British Columbia. Buying BC mink is not something that we're advertising here. Right. So the measures that we've got right now, capping existing, you know, farms at their current numbers, do you think that'll work? I think that'll work just for now. We're going to see this come back. So this is not something that's going to go away until we end mink farming in British Columbia. The 
a public health order is a great first step. Having an inventory as to how many hundreds of thousands potentially of mink are on farms at the moment and the circulating risk is really important. But like you said, there has been the industry touting its biosecurity measures, its mitigation measures for over a year and a half. But when an FOI revealed that there were serious workspace uh, issues um, that affected workers, um, not only Canadians, but foreign workers who were put at risk due to failures in these biosecurity measures. Now you have four minks escaping their cages, running around the farm. So this could risk our wildlife too. Are we are we doing enough then to monitor these farms? Well, that's the thing is there is an untold amount of our tax dollars currently going into monitoring. So we have the Ministry of Public Health, we have the Ministry of Agriculture, and then we have the Ministry who oversees wildlife, all doing surveillance and biosecurity on farms. And so that's costing taxpayers a lot of money during a really tough pandemic economically. And so how long are we willing to pay for this, for ongoing surveillance testing? And we don't know if it will ever be resolved. Okay, so then what are the next steps here, Sarah? Like for now, you feel like it is contained. Uh, well, we don't think so. Honestly, on this farm, there's lots of monitoring. Yes, but you can't contain a virus from spreading amongst the mink. And again, even with vaccinated populations, we are potentially going to have this virus circulating amongst us ongoing. So we don't want to see a mink variant come out of British Columbia and then be ineffective in our vaccine program. So this is an issue that needs to end. There is one path to that, and that's just phasing out for farms in British Columbia, period. All right, Sarah, thank you for your time on that. My pleasure. That is Sarah Dubois, the BCSPCA's Chief Scientific Officer, talking about mink farms in BC. Once again, they are seeing some COVID-19 cases or positive cases of the virus that causes COVID-19 in humans, I guess would be the absolutely correct way to put that. And it's this has been an ongoing concern, right? This keeps happening on mink farms over the last year and a half. So the latest public health order uh, in regards to mink farms, which was issued yesterday, says that all new mink farm operators um, got this order yesterday and that halts any new mink farms. So no new farms will be approved and it caps all existing ones at their current numbers. Uh, but is it time to take a more dramatic step here since we keep having this problem? Find a way in, simi at cknw.com.